One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, where we don't usually touch on current affairs on the Ancients podcast, as you'd expect, but today's an exception. We are living in extraordinary times. We are witnessing before our eyes the horrific, the brutal invasion of Ukraine by Russia, orchestrated by Vladimir Putin. I can't even imagine how terrifying it is for those Ukrainians having to resist this aggressor on the front line and those trying to flee. Now, we can't do much on the Ancients podcast regarding this current invasion, but we did want to use this platform to shine a light on this area of the world's incredible ancient history, the ancient history of its people, a history which stretches back thousands of years, and also to show why Putin was so wrong when he inferred that Ukrainians had always been part of Russia. We're going to be giving an overview of Ukraine's ancient history. We're going to be going from the Paleolithic, the Pleistocene, to the Mesolithic, to the Neolithic, all the way down to the Iron Age. Joining me to talk through all of this and more, I was delighted to get on the podcast Dr. Alexei Nitikin from Grand Valley State University in Michigan in the United States. I was incredibly grateful for his time and I do really hope you enjoy this podcast. So without further ado, here's Alexei. If I may... I'd like to make an opening statement Absolutely. to kind of frame this discussion with respect to the ongoing military aggression of Russia against Ukraine. And what you asked about how far back this whole thing goes, the further back in history we go, the less obvious the modern geopolitical distinctions become. Politically, both Russia and Ukraine are products of modern history. A citizen of Kiev, for example, would probably identify themselves more as being Polish rather than Ukrainian or Russian just 120 years ago. And, as a matter of fact, a citizen of Lviv, the western counterpart of Kiev, was in fact a citizen of Poland as recently as 1939. There are things in the history of Russia and Ukraine that unite us, but also there are modern geopolitical realities that divide us. The further the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues, the deeper the divide is going to be. As of today, we are at a point of a historical no return. Tomorrow, the history books will be rewritten to remove most of the Ukraine-Russia association from the collective memory of future generations. In fact, Russia might have to start to shop for a new history for itself and look towards the East for national self-identity. Russia's membership in the European History Club might be revoked for good. That's all I wanted to say. Now, please answer. Ask your questions. I'll be glad to answer. Thank you for that opening statement, Alexei. And yeah, thank you for saying that. I mean, okay, so 
as we delve therefore back into ancient history and give an overview of this area of Europe, you know, Ukraine's ancient history, these thousands of years, an overview we're going to do now. I mean, I guess it makes sense to start, well, from the very start. When do we have the earliest archaeological evidence for people living in the area of Ukraine? Well, the earliest evidence coincides with the African migration. So whenever you see evidence of modern, anatomically modern humans, Homo sapiens sapiens, in Eurasia, and that is early as 44,000 years ago in Indonesia, because we spread out of Africa to every corner of the world except for the New World. So the the earliest trace is in Indonesia about 44,000 years ago. The earliest dated uh, site in Ukraine, in Transcarpathian Ukraine, is uh, dated to 39,000 years ago. So we, as modern humans, we've been in Ukraine from the very beginning. In fact, this history goes even further back in time because uh, we also have cousins, Neanderthals. And if we look at the record of their habitation in, in Ukraine, the, the record goes at least 100,000 years further back in time. So collectively, if we take all the types of humans, hominids we call them, Neanderthals and modern humans, I would say a good 150,000 years at least, if not more. In fact, there was a site discovered in the Carpathian, the western part of Ukraine, just about 10 years ago, that some archaeologists associate with Homo erectus. And that's, we go back a million and a half. So it's basically, whatever the earliest traces of hominins in Europe you see, Ukraine is about as old as any other fossil on the subcontinent. I mean, it's incredible how far that history does stretch back, Alexei. And I mean, into prehistory itself. As we move forwards from that into, let's say, the Mesolithic era, the Mesolithic age, first of all, when are we roughly talking about with that age in Ukraine? And what do we know about the people who were living in that area of the world at that time? Well, we, actually, we, we know quite a bit. So if we look at the geological sort of divide, Pleistocene and Holocene, Chronologically, the Holocene era began about 11,650, well, BP, years ago, right? Not because we, we can use BP years ago and BC, or BCE, before Common Era. That's minus 150, 1950, I'm sorry, from, from the before today. So the, the Holocene is the end of the last Ice Age. And during the Ice Age, we have continuous occupation of Ukraine. There are sites in the middle of Dnieper that have made, well, they're huts, they're actually settlements dating as far back as 21,000 years ago. So it's the height of glacial maximum. And these huts were built using mammoth bones. These were solid buildings. Inside of these buildings, there were hearths, there were beds made out of mammoth bone. One hut discovered in the 1970s in the middle of Dnieper area the town of Mezurich, was covered in 40 mammoth tusks and made of 29 mammoth bones, belonging to 29 individual mammoths. So this is, uh, this is spectacular. You don't really see that anywhere else in the world. And so while it was cold, you know, I'm in Michigan, I live in Michigan right now. And so at that time, Michigan was covered in ice about a mile thick. During that time in Ukraine, there were already uh, people living relatively comfortably in those mammoth huts. So the Ice Age ends at uh, about, uh, well, the start of the Holocene, 11,600 BP. I have discovered in the archives of the Institute of Archaeology in Ukraine back in 2014, the human skeleton 
It was found by famous Ukrainian archaeologist Dmitry Telegin, but it wasn't recorded anywhere, so nobody knew about its existence. That individual, we've done uh, studies on him, we've got the DNA, we've got the date, uh, he dates to 300 years after the Holocene, so right at the end of the Ice Age. So basically, if we put everything together, there's no break in human habitation between the Pleistocene and the Holocene eras. So humans uh, occupy Ukraine. As soon as the ice retreats, there are already people living in the Dnieper Valley. So we do have similar records in, say, the Iron Gates area, for example, but Iron Gates is a little different to the climate. What we're talking about in Ukraine, the, the, the ice sheet was pretty close to where we see human habitation. But then again, they live at the height of the ice age, so it's no surprise that they just made themselves more comfortable once the ice retreated. And they started to fish, and so they live in that area of the Dnieper Valley, the middle of the Dnieper Valley and down towards the Black Sea, uh, continuously for over 4,000 years. And their subsistence, their genetics uh, remained the same, well, more or less, uh, during that time period. I mean, that's incredible to think, like, the, the genetics there, Alexei. And is it quite important here to stress, you mentioned that river valley, the Dnieper River Valley there. And as you mentioned, you know, the, the Danube River Valley too, with archaeology dating back that far back. Is it important to stress, like, during this ancient period, how important these river valleys were, such as the Dnieper, for the sustaining of life, shall we say? They're vital, because uh, we don't see that same density, uh, population density, outside of the river valleys. The archaeological record in what is now the, the steppe and the forest steppe area of, of Ukraine is uh, rather patchy because humans were not concentrated in, in any numbers in those areas up until much later, up until the, the Bronze Age when herding became widespread. But as far as hunter-gatherers are concerned, uh, we're sure that there were tons of them roaming the, the woods of central and northern Ukraine. We just we don't see them because they were scattered. Along the, the river valley, there are over 200 sites uh, of the Mesolithic and Neolithic uh, time and over 20 cemeteries, large cemeteries. I think it's 24, 25 actually. There's recently, there's one more discovered in the area of the stone tomb, the, the area that's... Uh, currently under the Russian control in the city of Melitopol in the Azov area, where we actually have a record of human habitation going back probably 40,000 years ago, continuously to the present day. It's, it's one of the most fascinating places on the planet. Well, you mentioned Neolithic there. So what happens, what changes occur in the Ukraine area at the end of the Mesolithic? That's a very good question. And the answer to that is nothing, really. Neolithic is defined in the rest of Europe, uh, and if we go to Asia Minor, as we call it, Anatolia, which is now Turkey, the, the, the Neolithic industry is identified by pottery. So there's pre-pottery Neolithic in, in Anatolia, for example, but in Europe, Neolithic is associated with farming. The massive migration of farmers from Anatolia just into the Balkans and then in Central Europe. Well, the farming didn't quite stretch as far as the Dnieper River. Dnieper is just one of the rivers, obviously. There's Buk River, there's Dniester, there's the Danube is on the western side of Ukraine. And so it, on the Danube, there were Balkan farming populations going as far back as 8,000 years ago. And so we see some interaction between those farmers and the hunter-gatherers of Ukraine. 
And so you, you, the Ukrainian hunter-gatherers were aware of the existence of agriculture. They just didn't feel like getting involved because that fishing lifestyle was very well fitting to their well, needs to survive. And if you go further into, well, further east towards Dnieper, we see some traces of agriculture reaching that area, but the population stays predominantly Mesolithic. And so we, when we discuss Ukrainian Neolithic, we talk about it in terms of Mesolithic economy during the Neolithic times. So that's so interesting. I mean, so how long does it take, therefore, from this, 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 to, for that change to therefore occur, for the Mesolithic economy to change to a more Neolithic economy, shall we say, uh, in the area of Ukraine? Here we'll, we'll start getting into some complications okay. in terms of the answer. If we still focus on the Dnieper Valley, Neolithic never happens there. Mesolithic uh, becomes Bronze Age, basically. Well, Eneolithic, there's a period of time where... So the Dnieper Valley people never picked up agriculture up until late Bronze Age. So uh, it's basically the Mesolithic lifestyle becomes pastoralist lifestyle. So they skip the farming portion of history and go straight into the pastoralism, to herding. The ecology of the Dnieper Valley is not really supportive for, for well, Neolithic-style farming. The slash-and-burn idea that Chupilians used in the western part of Ukraine. So if you move further up from the steppe into the forest steppe and actually into the forest area of western Ukraine, the footsteps of the Carpathians, that's where we start seeing agriculture becoming widespread. As a, And I'm going to switch to BC now because whenever we we have to be more narrow in terms of our definition. So about, well, 5,000 BC, I would say, shortly after the linear pottery ceramics culture in Central Europe becomes dominant, we see Trupalian culture starting to form probably uh, in the southwestern part of Ukraine. And then it's moving into the northern parts, Carpathian Mountains, and then going into, into towards east. Genetically, we are working, so I can't disclose too much of what we're doing, but we do see direct connections with the farming world of Central Europe and the Balkans in Trapillion genetics. So they're clearly, these are much like their European cousins, they are, well, genetically Anatolians. But in, in Trapillion case, they are mixing at a certain degree with the local Mesolithic population, the population that we have very little trace of, in the wooden part of Ukraine, but we see genetic traits. Now, Trupilians move through the western part of Ukraine, reaching uh, Kiev uh, about 4200 BC, maybe 44. Uh, it's hard to tell, we're working on refining that. Certainly by the early uh, fourth millennium, they're, they're already there. But they're reaching the Dnieper Valley and they stop in there. They do not cross Dnieper. And they do not seem to have a whole lot of interaction with the, the Mesolithic lifestyle people living along the river. It's only when we see the steppe nomads starting to spread or to sort of infiltrate the Mesolithic population of Dnieper Valley that we start seeing interactions between them and Trupil. 
So let's focus in, therefore, on this Tripilia culture. I've done a little bit of research behind this. And Alexei, it's so interesting. I could ask questions about it for hours. But main questions that I'd love to ask today, one of them is regarding Tripilia settlements, because we do seem to have Tripilia settlements, do we, dating to this time? That's Tripilia settlements... It's an enigma. It's a very big enigma. It's a very obvious one. We see, can see it. We can touch it. We do not understand it. This phenomenon is, there's clearly something missing here. There's so many ideas. I, I have one, and I just, I had a paper submitted recently that where I discussed this. To me, it seems like there, uh, the Tribillion Mega Settlements, where it responds to a change in the local and regional and continental uh, environment. I think this is, we know that uh, by about 4,900 BC, climate starts to change. It starts to shift towards more arid, drier, colder. Farming becomes less efficient. And this is the time when we start seeing the collapse of Balkan farming cultures. Now, farming is associated with uh, an increase in, in population density. Well, you can you can feed more people, so that that's obvious. Now, when when you see a collapse of farming societies, there's still people. They're not dying in great numbers. We don't see that in the record. Well, we see the abandonment of their settlements. Well, they have to go somewhere. My my understanding is that time period in the 4,000 BC to 39, 35,000 BC was associated with the mass migration of people from the Baltic. Where would they go? So if, if you look to the West, it's very densely settled. There, there's, there's uh, LBK, is still in, exists, well, whatever comes after that. But uh, Central Europe is, is densely populated. Agriculture is still going strong there to some degree. But to the East, there's nobody's there. There's barely anybody. Well, the Chapelians are there, but they're further up north. And so if you look uh, from the Balkan along the, in the northern shore of the Black Sea, if you have to move, and, oh, by the way, the Black Sea level uh, rose five meters or so during that time. So they had to go regardless. I think where they went was southeast Ukraine. And so the thing about it is that perhaps these, these towns, these large cities, proto-cities, we can't, we can't call them cities, it's proto-cities, they were built in response to this migration. So this is kind of a humanitarian crisis of, probably similar to what Ukraine is going through right now. And to accommodate uh, the, the population influx, I think, these settlements were created. Like if, if you look at the record, some of these settlements, well, first of all, they were all built in the same area, 100 square kilometers. Uh, there were dispersed settlements uh, elsewhere, but for the most part, there was, they were built right in this area that connects four step and step in Ukraine. And uh, while there's a talk about them being surrounded by defense structures, it's not clear whether that was defensive or just kind of staking the territory. We don't know exactly what that, what was going on there. But they, they were built in the, I can't say in a hurry, but it doesn't seem that they were occupied. See, there were temporary occupations that we can see, but no permanent settlements. In these. And so the best thing that comes to my mind is that these were temporary shelters built to accommodate an influx of, of refugees from the Balkans. And Alexei, I mean, if you're able to answer this question, do we know how many of these settlements have been found so far? How many of them have we found in Ukraine? 
The number, I'm not sure exactly what the number is. There were several, so if I'm going to think about the, the largest ones, it's Maidanetsk, Talyanki, Nabilivka, there at least five major ones. I'm talking with the, the, the size of over a thousand acres uh, and uh, housing probably 2,000 to 3,000 buildings. So these absolutely phenomenally massive constructions. I think there are five major ones. Yes. So you know, if you put it all together, it's staggering. Just, just there's some overlap in, in time in there, uh, in terms of when and how they were built and uh, how long they might have been occupied. But it really, it, it, it's like within 200 year time period from each other. So the very young, the youngest one is probably like 3600 BC, and at which point they disappeared. So there's a period of time, probably four or five hundred years. Well, my Bulgarian colleagues think it's five hundred. I think it's more than like two hundred, uh, and then it's gone. And again, it wasn't. They were not used on a continuous basis. But five plus two or three more that qualify as mega settlements. It's incredible as as the word mega settlements implies. You know, they're huge for the time. And just imagine the population density there as well, uh, Alexei. I mean, huge, isn't it? I was calculating that uh, the other day, and conservatively, conservatively, the, uh, if we if we think of even a temporary residency, there were almost forty five thousand people wow. living uh, at any given time uh, in the area at about fifty square kilometers. That's a population density of about nine hundred people per square kilometer. If you think about it, that's fifteen times fifteen hundred times higher than population density of the early farming cultures in the Lower Rhine Basin, the first half of the 51st century BCE. So they had 0.6 people per square kilometer. These had 900 people per square kilometer. That's unbelievable. It's higher than the population of Paris in the late medieval times. It blows your mind. It blows your mind, you know, for that time, the amount of people that we can estimate were there conservatively, as you said. There is one other site that I'd like to talk about quickly before we move on. And this is a site that I know you've also done a lot of work on. And this is the site of, and correct me if my pronunciation is wrong, uh, Vertiba. Now, Alexei, what is this site? So imagine this. All these 900 people per square kilometre calculations, 45,000 people live in in the area of 50 square mile, kilometers radius, there's not a single human bone left from them. Not a single one. That's just, it's impossible to explain. The 2000 year history of Trupelia, we have next to nothing in terms of human remains. And we only start seeing them at the very end, like 3,500 years BC and, and going into the Bronze Age. And that's by that time, and many scholars think that they're no longer Trupillians. They kind of emerged between farmers and the steppe people, the, the, the nomads that then became Yamna. Vortaba is one of the few places in Trupillian, among Trupillian sites, where we see human remains being deposited on a regular basis. In fact, uh, the continuous deposition I've calculated is uh, stretching over 3,500 years. What it is, it's a cave. It's a cave that uh, sits on the promontory looking over a river, River Ser. Well, in the, in the valley of the river, there's a significant Trupillian settlement that is built on top of the Linea Pateris Ceramics settlement. And LBK, Linea Pateris Ceramics, is the central European farming culture that started farming, started the Neolithic in Europe, basically. 
So they obviously they're related to that culture, directly related. And so, and up in, on, the, on the hill, there's this cave uh, that uh, is full of human remains. And these remains are Tupilian remains. And so this is one of, it's the only place so far, again, I'm not going to spoil it because we found another one, but that's, it's, it's going to take a while to re reveal to the world. But this particular one's been known for, for a couple of centuries. In the, at the time, that part of Ukraine was Poland. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, uh, Poland was what Western Ukraine today it used to be Poland up until 1939. And so Polish archaeologists researched that cave. It was discovered by a person who owned that land, basically, uh, back in mid-19th century. But actually, the record goes further back, almost like 17th century. And so we see that it's packed with human remains. They're disarticulated means that these are secondary uh, burials. So the dead were probably exposed to, to open-air burial uh, on the top of the, of the cave. I've done some studies the, around the cave, and it seems to confirm that what we find at the top is small bones. What we find in the cave are large bones. So to me, that means that, well, they fit the larger bones, took them to the cave, and then whatever's left at the top you know, still remains. The earliest uh, human remains uh, in the cave, chronologically, date to 3900 BC. So that's the, coinciding with the expansion of Trupilians uh, eastwards. And then it goes into the Iron Age and the, the, the Roman artifacts in that cave. But Trupilian occupation seems to end at about 3000 BC. So 900 years of Trupilian secondary burials can be found in that cave. So this it's the best record that we have of mortuary practices of the early Trupilian uh, culture. Now, Alexi, before we completely move on from the Trupilian culture, I appreciate this is quite a difficult question because I'm sure there's so much that we could also talk about. But is there anything else you'd like to highlight about the Trupilian culture before we move on to the end of the Trupilian culture and what follows? There's been a lot of focus in, in Ukrainian, well, history, recent history uh, on Trupilian. While I really enjoy Trupilian and it is a fascinating culture, I want to emphasize that so far the attempts to build Ukrainian history started from a very colorful, in my mind, dead end of that history. So it was a, a, an incredible culture in itself that probably, uh, well, inspired a lot of things that, that followed, but itself the culture dissolved in what came after in the early Bronze Age. For Ukrainian history to really get on the solid ground. I think that they have to start moving away from focusing on Tripoli and starting to emphasize what happened after, which is the early Bronze Age, because that's where the impact of people who lived in Ukrainian territory is most visible to the present day. Well, let's go on to that right now. So what does happen after the Tripilian culture, Alexei? The world of old Europe collapses. The end of what we call Enolithic or Calculitic ends about 3300, 3000 BC, that was dominated by farming economy in Europe, goes away. So the Atlantic climatic optimum that allowed agriculture to continuously supply food to people for like 2000 years ended. So these uh, new atmospheric, new climatic realities started to, to appear throughout Europe. And the economy shifted 
towards more herding, limited farming, but more herding, more animal husbandry. The Europe was introduced to this new economy by the people who lived in the steppes of Ukraine, the southern portion, the northern Black Sea area, probably as early as the end fourth millennium, so like 3000 BC. This is the Yamna culture. This uh, Yamna culture, if you go back to uh, in, in historical retrospect, the discoveries of the culture and what it was considered to be, uh, we have to invoke, a, it's a huge topic. Really, I can you know, spend hours and I don't want to confuse anybody because it's, it's, so, it's so packed with, with events. The 3000 BC is a point, or 3500 to 3000 BC, when the Indo-European culture becomes dominant, first in the, in the eastern part of Europe and then spreading over, over the western part. We are debating about the sources of this Indo-European culture. But one thing that uh, your listeners need to understand is that the origin of all European languages except for Hungarian and Finnish and Estonian, goes back to this Indo-European proto-language. And this language is coming from the steppes of Ukraine. It's, this is not a kind of a local creation. Uh, this is an introduced language. And according to Maria Gimbutas, the, the mother of new European history, and the Lithuanian scientist who immigrated during the Soviet times uh, and really had this... Uh, contempt for, for the Soviet Union, you know, ideology, everything that's associated with it. So she built this historical analysis of, of, of the Yamna culture based on her sort of political, historical perspective. And uh, it was right on. Nobody really thought about it this, this way until her. Well, I mean, people did. Archaeologists before her did see an invasion uh, from the East, but she framed it uh, into this violent takeover of old Europe by these crazy nomads uh, riding their horses uh, from the steppes of Russia across Ukraine into Europe. And so the language that they brought with uh, was an introduced language, uh, and the culture, this new the cultural dimension that they introduced is also foreign to Europe. And so this Indo-European idea takes over like locust, Europe becomes Indo-Europeanized in a matter of a few hundred years. Hi everyone, I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. I've got a brand new podcast where we discuss all things green, from nature to recycling, to foraging, to potty training cows. Yeah, I'm not joking. Apparently, it helps with pollution. Each week, you'll be hearing from some recognisable faces off the telly and eco-experts who will tell us how they try and sometimes fail to live a greener life. People like the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith. It is only people who don't know what they're doing that can do marvellous things in some areas because Received wisdom will sometimes, you'll talk yourself out of it if you've got lots of people who've done it before. Ecopreneur Ashita Cabri-Davis on why renting our clothes might be the future. You know, you might feel great about yourself because you did a wardrobe clear out and you donated things to charity shops, but 90% of those donations are completely worthless and they're sent to landfills in Asian and African countries. And my old pal Jamie Oliver on how to eat in season. I think I was stupid enough, naive enough, and unspoilt enough about the world 
that we live in. Tune into On Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The speed of which it happens is insane, as you say, that that westward movement of these people. I mean, keeping on that a bit longer than Alexei, what impact does the arrival of the Yamna have on the area of Ukraine? What's the impact for the next, well, I guess, decades, centuries or so? Here, I have a little bit different uh, perspective than most of my colleagues. It is Ukraine-centered, and, and it was Ukraine-centered before all this, this, this the, what's going on today happened. It's Ukraine-centered because I think that Yamna, Yamna's origins are in the Lower Dnieper Valley in Ukraine. Uh, so essentially, Ukraine is Yamna. I mean, these uh, two, uh, well, geographical and ethnocultural uh, ideas, they are the same. So the beginning of Ukraine, I would say, would be in the Yamna uh, culture. Now, Again, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, you know, we cannot discuss Ukraine in its current political setup going back 5,000 years. So 5,000 years ago, I mean, even 200, even 100 years ago, the whole arrangement, political map looked very different. So Ukrainian national identity started to form in modern times. So we're not really talking about you know, Yamla being the beginning of it. But it began to conceptualize, in my mind. It began to conceptualize 5,000 years ago, this national identity. And it's been replaced and, and taken over hundreds of times afterwards. But there's some territorial memory, so to speak, that kind of sticks uh, you know, to, 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 to the Yamna's expansion. In my mind, uh, well, it's just not, I mean, it's an educated guess. I've done a lot of studies on this. So in my mind, Yamna formed uh, somewhere in the Lower Dnieper Valley, and then it moved. It moved west a little bit, to the borders of modern Ukraine. Today. And then it moved east. So there was, there was a massive expansion of Yamna groups from the territory of you know, the steppe area of Ukraine towards the Samara Valley in, in the upper Volga part in the Urals. There are cultures in the Urals that, that are genetically essentially Yamna, but the culture is a little different, but still people associate them with Yamna. So there was this expansion Ukrainian Yamna groups to the east. Something happened there in the east because uh, after a while they became numerous to a point that they had to move somewhere else. So going further to Siberia was kind of productive. There's not a whole lot you know, of land that, that remained there that's open for, for grazing. And so this, this mass of people moved west, crashed, moved through Ukraine and went uh, into Europe. So 
the speed of their movement at that time, there was a paper published very recently on the domestication of horse, a group that is one of the most famous uh, archaeologists of Eastern Europe, David Anthony, participated. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I worked with David Anthony on, on a number of projects related to uh, to Yamna expansions. And so they were saying in that paper that the horse domestication took place in late Bronze Age. So we cannot really associate the Yamna expansion with horse riding. But there was something about their ability to move that we clearly are not understanding. That they, they had wagons, but again, how fast a wagon moves. And then the wagons were probably driven by cattle, generally speaking. So that's what 30 kilometers a day. This is not horseback riding. But there was something about the expansion that we still do not understand. In the historical retrospect, it was instantaneous. So it's, I'm talking 200 years, maybe three, and they were everywhere. And this is what we need to understand. We don't know what that means. We don't know. I mean, so when approaching this topic, Alexei, what sorts of archaeological evidence do we have from Ukraine? If you compare it to, uh, to the record uh, of Trupelia, it's, it's kind of the opposite. So in Trupelia, you have a bunch of you know, pottery and you know, the record of farming and that, all that stuff. No people. In the Yamna, we have kind of the opposite. We have plenty of people, not a whole lot of culture. The best cultural attribute that, that we can see and use uh, to understand this group is a curtain, a burial mound. And so that's the most distinctive part of Yamna culture. And in fact, uh, we define the Yamna historical cultural complex, as my Ukrainian colleagues call it, by the building of the Kurgan and the burial in a specific burial position. Now, the Russian colleagues seem to argue that the burial position is not a defining part, but to us, what we call Yamna is really very uniform in terms of barriers. When they start to expand back and forth, this changes. But the core Yamna, in, in, in my mind, is associated with very specific burial position, burial goods, and a curtain. And so that's, that's what we have to, to, to go by. And so then when we find the dates for individual burials based on uh, carbon dating, and we, uh, we have a pretty good handle because what Yamna really is, uh, because we, we've dated over 100 specimens right now from what we call Yamna, and the group is very tight in terms of dating. We're probably looking at the 3100 to 2600 BC, which is still 500 years. That's a big stretch, but I mean, spread of time. But really, it's very compact compared to other cultures. So we do have a cultural and the sort of dating affiliation that matches. But that's about it. Then we need to start understanding what is it that, that drove them to become young. This part is unclear. I mean, I just have to keep on the Kurgans a, a little longer before we move on and really go through the Bronze sure. Age into the Iron Age. I mean, are there any particular sites, particular Kurgans that you'd like to highlight, you know, that where there's you know, some spectacular grave goods or something where we've learned a lot of information about the Yamna? This is a hard part because uh, we don't have uh, that phenomenal record uh, in Ukraine uh, to really highlight any, any specific Kurgan. If we go to, to, to the east, to, to, to where the core of the, the Yamna, to me, is located, the, the Kurgans there, they started, it was a continuation of a long history of burials that, that preceded Yamna. So if I would highlight a Kurgan, there's a, a Kurgan... Uh, or Janikidza 24, it's, the, the, the word might not mean much, but, but the, there is 
a series of turbines in the Lower Dnieper Valley that started out as a, uh, a ritual center by the groups that preceded Yamna by 500 years or more. That was pretty spectacular. That was, it's visual, like, you know, if I would try to describe it, it might not do these sites justice, but these were basically uh, areas, uh, flat areas uh, in the middle of nowhere with uh, torches uh, the size of oak trees burning in some places for hundreds of years. We, we actually see ash layers that, that talk about two, three hundred years of continuous burning. This is, we cannot explain that. It's, the, the, what was going on there is absolutely mind-boggling. So they were surrounded by ditches. These were kind of causeway enclosure type ditches, so those structures that you see in England, by the way, in, in the British Isles. But much later, a thousand years later. And so they would have these platforms, flat platforms, with six or eight posts, 30, 40 centimeters in diameter or more, that showed signs of burning. So they, they were cutting down huge trees. And I don't know where they were finding these trees, because we're talking about step here. There's hardly any trees around. Not certainly not of that size, not today, but maybe they were there before. And so something spectacular was going on there. And then it stopped. And 100 years, 200 years after that, you see a curtain erected by the Yamna culture right on top of these places. There is another, to me, an absolutely fascinating curtain in the uh, Odessa region of Ukraine, called Revero Kurgan, that started out the same way. The main burial in the Kurgan dates to 3700 BC. So that's, well, half a millennium before Yamna, give or take. That it wasn't a curtain at the beginning, so there was, it was a, a raised kind of hill in the steppe that was level, and a, a sanctuary was built on top of it. The, the sanctuary was built in the form of a turtle. So the, the stones were laid out that represented a turtle looking towards the west. You can see the paws and the tail, I mean, if, if you're taking a drone picture of it. I mean, it's no longer in existence. It was destroyed because there was a rescue excavations to build it, the highway. But the pictures remain, so we, we know what it looked like. And so in the middle of this turtle, there's this shaft, basically, dug into it. And a bag of human bones was deposited right into that. And then the two posts, posts that were erected in, on the western side of this, of this uh, sanctuary, that we don't know whether they were burning or not, because... Uh, I don't know if that excavation picked up a whole lot of charcoal, but there were clearly 60, I think there's 60 centimeters in diameter holes. So they're enormous, absolutely enormous. And in my understanding, uh, there was an actual stone box that was built on top of that, which was later used, the, the, the stone slabs were used for early Yamna burials that came 500 years later. And so these, these slabs were used to cover the dead of the Yamna, and the Kurgan was erected on top of it. Wow. That's, that's just a preview of, of what's, what's going on there. I mean, absolutely. I, I wish I do. I'd love to ask more questions about it. Um, but of course, we've got to keep moving on uh, for this particular podcast. Sure. But you've given sure. very much a, a flavor of, of what people can expect by doing more research, by looking into that area. But if we, let's say, we keep moving forwards in time, the, through the Bronze Age, getting to the end of the Bronze Age, beginning of the Iron Age, what do we know about the cultures, the people who are living in Ukraine, the area of Ukraine at that time, Alexei? Gets gets even more complicated. <laughs> um, we, we start getting 
this is my least favorite part of history because it becomes busy and uh, hard to define. And so you have to be, you know, I can be a generalist uh, when it comes to Mesolithic and Neolithic and maybe the beginning of the Enolithic. But it, it would get into the late Bronze Age, the number of cultures and the complexity increases so much that I can give you some highlights, but it's not going to be very well comprehensive. We do see a back migration from Europe, from Central Europe, at the later portion of the Bronze Age. Well, Yamna is uh, succeeded by a group called Catacomb Culture, and that's a phenomenon that I'm not really ready to, to discuss today because we, we, we began to change our understanding of what it was. It, it used to be uh, looked at as an extension of Yamna. Uh, we now understand that it, it's, it's much more complicated than that. There was apparently a very tense relationship between what we call corded wear culture, that what we now understand really is responsible to, for the bringing of the step genetics into Europe, but it wasn't the product of Yamna. It, it was kind of a later culture that emerged in, in the void in some places where that Yamna left or tried to encroach in the Yamna territory. So there was another group called the Catacomb culture that was doing the same thing from the East. At the end of all that, we go into the middle and towards the end of the Bronze Age. There were groups of uh, people from Europe, Central Europe, moving east uh, and establishing late Bronze Age cultures all over Ukraine. And it's no longer just a step. It's all over Ukraine. Uh, some of these groups probably are related to Trapelians. We, we really haven't looked at them yet. But most likely these are Eastern, like uh, German area, um, Central Europe. Uh, groups that really found a, an economic pattern that they used to their advantage and they became, well, numerous enough. So they had to, had to look for different territories to, to settle. And so they moved into the areas of Ukraine that became pretty much, well, depopulated by who knows what reasons, uh, historical, economic, environmental. It's hard to tell. And so they start, start to expand and they start to, to take roots and start to, 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 to farm that area. And honestly, to me, this is Ukraine now. So this is, this is it. It doesn't matter what, what happens afterwards. The people that were produced, I guess would be a word, formed on territory what is now Ukraine from associations with the steppe groups moving back and forth with these Western farmers coming in. Uh, with local populations still in the mix, this ancient Mesolithic population still probably remaining. Now we start to see this unique assembly that continues to persist in this territory, despite what happened afterwards. So Scythians and Sarmatians and all those cultures coming in, they've certainly contributed to the diversity of genes and culture. But the core group that settled the territory of Ukraine started in the late Bronze Age. My wife and I come from the village, my, our, our, her dad and my mom side, a village uh, between, well, beginning of Western Ukraine, basically. So from Kiev, 60 kilometers uh, to the West. The village uh, started 3,500 years ago. And it, you can continue, you see a continuous record of occupation. There's no break. The, the people are the same, you know, culturally speaking. I mean, we have legends and stories that go back to, Times uh, before probably writing was invented. On the territory of the village, you see Sarmatian monuments, you see Scythian kurgans, 
you see a whole bunch of Polish and Russian. I mean, it used to be Poland until 1939. All of that is there culturally, but it's superficial layer. The people of the village, they're the same. They never change to a point where you could say, oh, well, no, no, this is something different. Now, they, I think that what was formed in the late Bronze Age became the Ukraine that we see today. So that's so interesting because you mentioned words like like Scythian, Sarmatian, the Antes as well, I'm guessing as well, yeah. emerging in the Iron Age and no doubt we'll talk to in a bit. But from what you're saying there, Alexei, just to really reinforce and hammer home that, yes, we hear of these other cultures coming in at that time, but underneath those cultures, as it were, you know, the, the people who were living in Ukraine, the same people, as you say, at the end of the Bronze Age, living there throughout the Iron Age and down to the present day. I'm pretty certain of that. I have genetics to back me up. That's, that's my favorite tool. I am a geneticist. And uh, a geneticist who knows a little bit about archaeology. Well, if, we, if we look at the genetic record, what we see is a lack of, so far, I'm not saying that that's going to change. It you know, might, might, might change you know, going forward. But at this point, we see, to give you an example, uh, in central Ukraine, uh, there's a Scythian settlement. Uh, and the area that is now known as the city of Bensk. It used to be called Gedon. Uh, it was a Greek colony. So the Greek colony that was, well, settled by the Greeks back uh, maybe last part of, of, of the before common era, beginning of the new era. And so the city uh, became Scythian. So we, we, what we see here is that you have uh, people living sort of in the valley, and being buried in these flat, you know, ground cemeteries, and we see these kurgans, Scythian kurgans, erected, you know, around the, the settlement, and so we know, and, and, and cultural artifacts all point to to them being Scythian. So this is a Scythian settlement. And when you start looking at genetics, and things become a little bit less certain because we don't see the Greeks there. We don't see the Eastern Scythians there. Well, we do, but few. The majority of people are nearly indistinguishable from those who lived there a thousand years before. So whoever comes, you know, the Greeks, the Scythians, they bring in elements of their culture. And maybe in, you know, they're recorded in history as Greeks or Scythians, but essentially they're, they're Ukrainians. They're, they've been there long before Scythians you know, became you know, a culture. And they existed long after they're gone. And so, Alexei, I mean, who, who exactly were the Scythians? Because they seem to have this significant presence in, in Ukraine, in the area of Ukraine, for a sizable portion of the Iron Age. Scythians were, uh, if we were to define Scythians uh, as, as a group distinct from, you know, most of the Ukrainian populations, because, again, we're focusing on Ukraine, even though Scythians stretch over the entire steppe area. This was a nomadic conglomerate of uh, Asian, Central Asian and uh, West Siberian populations that took on the military sort of uh, agenda and, and cultural identity and expanded and well towards the West throughout the steppe. If you look at what the, the, the steppe area is, the, the Great European Plain, you know, and, and the way the Great Eurasian steppe stretches, it starts today in Hungary, in southern Hungary, and it goes all the way across Siberia. And in the, in the times before the last ice age, it crossed over the Bering Strait and ended in Kansas, in the United States. This is the, what steppe is. 
And so on that vast area, you see Yamna culture expanding and Scythians are taking over. Then the Mongolians come in. The great powers of Eurasia that, that reshaped uh, Eurasian politics, economy, and, and so forth, that many of them originated in the steppe. So the Scythians were just one of those phenomena, steppe phenomena, that basically it was an assemblage of uh, people united by some genetic uh, affiliation with, with Eastern, West Siberia and Central Asia, uh, that expanded uh, into the steppe of, steppes of Ukraine. So that's the core, sort of the cultural uh, and ethnographic core of Scythians. And that started probably as early as 11th century BC. But uh, in Ukraine, we have the 7th to 3rd century Scythian kingdom that was described by Greek uh, writers. That again was, for the most part, local population that was politically ruled by the Scythian elite. Uh, I participated uh, in uh, at least half of the studies, uh, genetic studies in Scythians uh, to date. And um, what we found uh, in, in places like Moldova and Ukraine is that if you go to any, any area that's called Scythian, and you look at the, how you know, the people that were buried in, in the Kurgans, and then uh, you can actually tell in, in Moldova the Kurgans of different uh, social level. So you know, they're, they're poor assemblage of burial goods, middle assemblage, high assemblage, and royal assemblages. And so if you look at the, the, the middle to, to poor genetics, it's all the same. It's all local. But as soon as you start climbing up, you start seeing genetic differences. And we only, I know for sure that we have genetics from one royal burial in Ukraine. We have high status burials, but we have a royal burial. So high status burials and the royal burial genetically are half and half. Half is local and half is Asian. The royal burial of a female, third century BC, uh, or second actually, we don't know because we haven't dated it, I think. I should check. <laughs> She genetically was from the Altai. She was Siberian. So clearly the highest level in the society, uh, the royal tomb, was of a Siberian woman, which is fascinating to me. Uh, she had no connection, genetic or probably cultural, to, to the rest of what we call Scythian. This, this, is, a, this is what the modern history of Russia and Ukraine is, unfortunately. From that point on, we start seeing... Foreign royalty presiding over local folk with no connection between them. And then the history is written according to what the royal folks think it should be written as. The people don't get to you know, get a say in that. And so you know, what, what Putin was saying about you know, Russian history, that's history from the perspective of an outsider. This is not the history that, that we see on the ground. Uh, no, absolutely. And so the whole genetics behind that is r really interesting to clarify and put that to the fore, Alexei, uh, especially uh, at this time. And I'm guessing, therefore, from what you're saying, you, we mentioned the other word earlier, the Sarmatians. We seem to follow the Scythians. Is it a similar case, therefore, with the Sarmatians of these people coming in, but the actual population remaining the same? I would say so. We, we, we look, Sarmatians are a little difficult here to... Sarmatians... They seem to be more local, uh, but not Ukrainian local. Uh, they like the Caucasus area local. And so it's the, the area of the Caspian steppe and the, and, and the northern Caucasus. Uh, 
uh, from the what we've seen so far. We haven't done, you know, we haven't looked at the genetics of you know, a lot of Sarmatians, but it seems that Sarmatians, they were similar to Scythians. They were in commerce, but more kind of in, from the surrounding areas. Uh, they maybe Iranian tribes, uh, Caucasus groups that that lived in in the Caucasus mountains. So it's kind of a local product. And while, yeah, they certainly contributed, they contributed more, in my mind, than Scythians, because with Sarmatians came different cultural lore, actually, and we, we start seeing things that, when the Greeks described Scythians, they, they, they clearly separate, you know, Scythians from, from, say, you know, the Greeks, I mean, these are wild tribes that Greeks feared and, and wanted to keep away. With Sarmatians, going into modern history, we start seeing more of uh, different type interactions, in my mind. Again, see, you, you talk to 100 archaeologists or, you know, geneticists or historians, you might hear 100 different stories. So, my, you know, I have to say that it has, it's been conditioned, you know, through my understanding. Uh, it, it isn't as objective as I can make it, but Sarmatians start to become more a part of European cultural identity than Scythians. Scythians clearly stayed away, had nothing to do with, with the, the following cultures. Sarmatians start to integrate. And this integration is uh, obviously foreign. You can see that there's a cultural difference. But uh, in, in many places, it becomes local. In Moldova, for example, which is fascinating, we see Sarmatian graves that we identify as being genetically over from, from, from the Caucasus side. But we see traces of that genetics all throughout modern times. So populations living around look that way, genetically. So they're not European in, in composition. They have a lot of Sarmatian genetics in them. So obviously they take, take roots and they bring new stuff with them and they transform the mentality, the cultural identity of, of places where, where they settle. I think the, the Hanuk expansion that followed uh, back when Hungary was established, was part using the same route that Sarmatians used a couple centuries before. So when we talk about the great migration of people, you know, things start to mix. I'm not your, your guy to talk about that. I mean, it's too, too, too complicated. But, uh, but we start seeing patterns. And I think the Sarmatians started certain patterns. In fact, Sarmatians are, in all probability, guarded the Hadrian Wall in, in, in the British Isles. So it was a group of Sarmatian uh, guards uh, that was brought by the Romans after they were defeated somewhere around Crimea uh, to, 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 to guard the Hadrian Wall. And so there, there are still remnants of that lore. Uh, some say the legend of King Arthur goes mm. back to Sarmatian times. And the whole idea of stone, out, you know, sword out of stone, it's a legend that still exists in the Ossetia region in the Caucasus, where we think Sarmatians came from. I mean, you know, that that is actually the inspiration for, I'm sure a few of our listeners will know this well, for I think it's that 2004, 2005 film, King Arthur, where we have Clive Owen yeah. and Kira Knightley, and it's the, the Sarmatians at Hadrian's Wall, as you say. So it's so interesting to hear that right there. I mean, Alexei, we'll do a brief overview of the late Iron Age in a second. I must also ask, because you have mentioned them a couple of times, uh, the Greeks in this time, we do seem to have this, this Greek presence on the coast of 
Ukraine for parts of the Iron Age, and I hope you can elaborate on that in a second. One thing from me, though, quickly on that is, I'm sure we'll talk about the site of Olbia, but during the Macedonian period, I, one of the things which is an amazing story from my perspective is that you have this Macedonian army who lay siege to Olbia in the late 4th century and they're utterly destroyed and the whole Macedonian army is destroyed. But it, it, it's, I guess it's just one example of the evidence that we no doubt have, Alexei, that there was this Greek presence in the area of Ukraine during the Iron Age. Here, my understanding of that becomes, again, less clear than my understanding of previous eras. But here's the thing. We're talking about the Greek presence, and this is mostly Crimea and the city of Mariupol, mm. um, today's Ukraine. It wasn't just Greeks. I mean, yeah, there was a Greek colony there going back uh, a thousand years before Vladimir the Great. But this Greek colony coexisted with a Scythian settlement. So they were actually part of the same structure, political structure, so Heliopolis and in other places um, in, in, in the Crimean Peninsula where we see uh, Greek uh, tombs, they, they sit next door to Scythian uh, crypts, actually they were crypts. Uh, and so when we're talking about the Macedonian army, uh, to me it's not entirely clear who were they fighting in that area. Again, I'm probably incorrect and there are people who know exactly what was going on. To me, at that time, southern Ukraine, what is southern Ukraine today, the Crimean Peninsula and the Azov area, it was it's a melting pot. I mean, to me, Ukrainian southern and western part is all just big melting pot of all cultures, of all influences, of all interests. And in some places, people found it to be useful to stop arguing about you know national origins and uh, cultural affiliations. And they created these uh, city-states that uh, really were multicultural, multinational. Well, maybe the city of Hersones, where the, the, the Greek colony retained its cultural identity. But in Olvia and, and in other places around Crimea, it's not as clear to me that it, culturally, you look at it, they're Greeks. Now, their weaponry is Scythian, and we don't know anything about their genetics yet. We haven't looked at them. But... Those that we did uh, appear, again, to be local. So that's the thing. You know, when you start looking in, into the core uh, of this, it appears it's the same people uh, who were there in the late Bronze Age. And so all these, you know, Greek colony to me is just a war. I mean, yes, there was a Greek oversight over those places, but over the population that was there thousands of years before. And that's, like I said, that story becomes the main theme of what happened to Ukraine and Russia, for that matter, beginning of you know, the beginning of the common era. Somebody else presided, I mean, ruled the local people for a long time. Alexei, this has been such a, an eye-opening chat today. I mean, just before we really start wrapping up, if we therefore do focus on those centuries that follow on from the first couple of centuries CE to the end of antiquity i guess around 600 700 ad ce let's say between let's say roughly you know, 300 and 600 or 700 ce i mean what changes i as an overview what changes do we see in ukraine at that time with the people who come and go again this is my personal educated opinion unfortunately the answer is really this would be the hardest question about uh, antiquity Mm. to me to resolve, because what we see is the near total absence of any records that we can, we can follow. 
in, in the British Isles, you have, you know, the Book of Celts that discusses, you know, the, the origins uh, of the British people. You, uh, in Greece, you have writings going back, you know, to, to, to Aristotle and, and Plato. The Greeks stopped paying attention to what was going on uh, in that part of the world right after, well, Sarmatian takeover. And so while we know that there were Greek colonies uh, in Hercynesus, for example, we don't have much in terms of a record of what was going on around them. The hi history is silent on that point in period in time. There are some writings that seem to indicate that there were these early Slavic tribes that started to, to, to spread uh, and um, to take over what uh, used to be Sarmatian territories you know, and all that. But beyond that, up until... We, we get into the like late 700s, early 800s. We have next to nothing in terms of, you know, understanding of what was going on. And that's an unfortunate thing. And I wish I could, you know, maybe somebody knows more than I do. But I just, I, you know, most of what we say we know about that period of time is pure speculation in my mind. Well, Alexi, this has been an absolutely brilliant chat. I mean, is it fair to say from all we've been talking about so far, especially with the genetics and everything like that, that the origins of Ukraine, the origins of the Ukrainian people, shall we say, I mean, it stretches back at least to the Bronze Age, thousands of years? I would say so. That, that's my understanding. Again, I'm trying to differentiate you know, the political, geopolitical designation from... Well, the sort of the biological essence. I am a biologist in the court. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be, I tried to be apolitical up until, well, February mm -hmm. 24 of this year. But to me, genetically, biologically speaking, the, the Ukrainian Ukrainians as a people started to form somewhere in the late Bronze Age. And so the identity that then became geographically defined as Ukraine started to form during that time. You know, I don't want to ever get into a discussion of when Ukraine was mentioned for the first time. I don't think it's relevant to me. There is a continuity of uh, peoples and ideas that span the territory that's defined as Ukraine. And that history goes back long before Ukraine or Russia were ever mentioned. Alexei, this has been a great chat. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Alexei Nitikin giving an overview of Ukraine's ancient history and also the genetic origins of many Ukrainians today and how it stretches back as far as the Bronze Age. I really do hope you enjoyed that podcast. It was really interesting to record, especially during these extraordinary times. Now, stay tuned for more content on the ancients this month. Every Sunday this March is our special Ides of March mini-series. We've got a series of episodes lined up. You're going to absolutely love them. All about the death of Julius Caesar, what happened next, the characters involved, the legacy, and so on. So stay tuned for that every Sunday this March. If you want more Ancients content, then why not subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which you can do via a link in the description below. If you'd also be kind enough to leave us a kind rating on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. But that's all from me, and I will see you in the next episode. Acast and Befeller. 
Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. 